Today's episode is brought to you by Logos Bible Software. Learn how you can get a free Bible study resource each month with Logos' free Book of the Month program. Visit logos.com slash the way home to learn more. What would it look like for Christian organizations rather than seeing other organizations as competitors, but to see them as potential partners and work together? Chris has a new book out called Rooting for Rivals. It's a really, really good leadership book. We're going to talk about what this looks like for Chris and his work in the humanitarian space and how his organization, Hope International, actively seeks to partner with other humanitarian organizations and how churches and institutions can model this idea of rooting for rivals. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Chris Horse. Chris, thanks for for coming back on the podcast. Absolutely. Appreciate you inviting me. There's a few reasons I wanted to have you on here. One, to to talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing with Hope International. I think a lot of people are familiar with, with the work that Hope does, but if someone isn't, explain a little bit kind of what, what you're doing around the world. Yeah, thanks, Dan. We started out of a failed charity project, actually. It was a church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, trying to help a church in Ukraine. Zaporozhye, Ukraine, that was struggling with poverty after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And and so the the well-intended church in Lancaster, wanting to help this church in Ukraine, started sending shipments of clothing, medical supplies, food, just to give indiscriminately away to people in Zaporozhye, Ukraine. And year after year, they started just sending over tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff to give away. And they would send people over, get their pictures with their Ukrainian brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, over the course of time, though, they began to see that that form of charity was actually creating more problems than it was solving. And in fact, it was a Ukrainian pastor who said to uh, Jeff Rutt, Hope's founder, he said, uh, we really appreciate that you're trying to help us, but we don't want you to come back anymore. And and it kind of caught Jeff off guard, understandably, like this is a lot of money and time that he'd invested personally in being a part of this. And I uh, felt just really kind of blindsided by this news that their attempts to help were actually hurting. And so out of that, uh, the sort of ashes of uh, some pretty hard conversations between these two churches, uh, Hope International was born. And and really the overarching vision is that we would help we would help people in places of poverty to be able to provide for themselves, help moms and dads be the providers for their kids, through the provision of small business loans, uh, through access to a safe place to save their money, and through the opportunity to join a community uh, of, of peers in their community of entrepreneurs that are also providing for their families. And all of that sort of baked within the context of our Christian faith and employing Christian uh, loan officers and staff in the places where we work to serve as missionaries, to, to serve and care for their neighbors uh, through the the you know, the provision of financial services in, in the context of a local church. So that's what Hope International does today. It started in Zaporozhye, Ukraine in 1997 uh, after that failed charity project. And today we're in 16 countries uh, serving just over 900,000 entrepreneurs working themselves out of poverty and, and serving serving their neighbors as best they can. Yeah, I mean, w- one of the things I just really love about the work that you guys do, not just the the actual projects you guys are doing to really uh, lift people out of, of poverty, but also as leaders in this in this field, leaders in this space, 
have articulated, I think, to to the rest of us, it's just kind of the importance of um, trying to establish sort of long-term sustainability in some of these places mm. and, and, the, and the importance of entrepreneurship and all that stuff. Why is that so important? I think a lot of American Christians, you know, really care about people in developing countries and their plight. And maybe our first impulse is, you know, I, I'm just going to write a check and, and, and send some money or, or send, you know, shoes or send clothing. And, and, and sometimes that's helpful. But the way that you've been able to, to think about development in terms of sustaining a long-term vision for these communities. Yeah, it's a, you know, I actually go back to the people of Israel and their journey out of Egypt, out of captivity. And, and as they're fleeing by God's miraculous deliverance, as they're fleeing slavery, fleeing Egypt, they, you know, cross over the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness. God has a certain way of caring for his people when they're alone, when they're stranded, when they're in the wilderness, when they're isolated. And it was the provision of water, the provision of manna, totally indiscriminately. Uh, not there was not a there were no strings attached to God's provision of generosity. I mean, it was just pure grace, and they needed it in that moment. Like no amount of long-term sort of sustainable charity project from God was going to help the people of Israel in that specific time in that specific place. Like they. They needed food uh, and they needed water. And I think that was a really appropriate strategy. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from helping and caring for people when they're in a place of total and complete desperation uh, in ways that are, are like that, you know, like the provision of manna, uh, like the provision of clean water. Now, of course, as soon as the people made it to the promised land, though, the manna stopped. And we, there's this really interesting uh, verse, and, and Jen Wilkin has, has done some really good work uh, uh, on this and has a study kind of expanding on this, but when the, when they reach the promised land, it's like, it says the day that they were able to eat the produce of the land, the manna stopped. And it wasn't this uh, indefinite time or this sort of uh, gradient where God sort of slowed down the manna and introduced farming. It was literally, that was the strategy for when they were in the wilderness. And as soon as they got the opportunity to own their own land, uh, the manna stopped. The manna was never a forever strategy. So along way of answering a short question. And that's, I think as Christians, sometimes we get stuck in sort of manna charity distribution. Like we sort of think people living in poverty need manna forever. And manna is good. Like manna is God's way of providing for his people when they're struggling. And it should be our way of helping people when they're really desperate, but it's never a permanent solution. That's always a bridge to helping people to stand on their own two feet. Uh, that's how God's designed us. He looked back to the creation mandate uh, we were designed to work. We were designed to care for our moms and dads. We're designed to care for our children. So, so that's how we're wired. Like that's how God has made us. Uh, and our charity needs to reinforce that. So, hope is not in the business of mana distribution, um, quote unquote. Uh, we're in the business of helping people to farm. Uh, and we really are grateful for organizations that are in the business of mana. Like there's a need for both. Mm, that's really good. And one of the things I quoted you and, and Peter Greer. Uh, some of the work that you've done on the importance of investment and entrepreneurial investment in in developing countries, and you know, people don't like to talk about capitalism, and there's a lot of you know, sort of dangers about capitalism when it's not you know properly applied mm, and all that mm. that we well understand. But how it really does help lift people out of poverty. I talked about a little bit about that in my chapter on work, and how this gives people dignity, right? Like what you're doing in terms of developing these communities and providing opportunity really 
helps them be more fully human, does it not? I I couldn't agree more. And and there are a lot, I mean, a lot of abuses of capitalism and a lot of abuses of business. And, and we see that even in, again, in the, the creation mandate, when sin entered the world, we know that work became toilsome and there are elements of work and labor that are really hard. And people living in poverty feel that most acutely. Uh, they feel the effects of injustice more than those of us that live in places of affluence. I think of uh, the book of James and um, there's the, a really powerful section in the uh, in chapter five where we read that God hears the cries of the workers who are oppressed. And, and there's this, some pretty strong language in, in that chapter uh, of God's feelings towards injustice. And so there, I don't want to downplay that, like that exists. And I think of being in the Dominican Republic not too long ago and being in a, a community of people that were supporting the sugarcane industry and the ways in which some of the sugarcane companies have disadvantaged and abused the workers of the sugarcane um, in that sugarcane in the sugarcane fields is, are really heinous. And at the same time, there's also a story of hope uh, that we see bubbling up throughout the world. And you know, Hans Rosling and Bill Gates have both done a lot of interesting research, and, and they ask and have asked Americans, "Do you think the world is getting more prosperous or less? Do you think poverty is getting better or worse?" And far more people think it's getting worse than better. And yet, if you look at any data point, whether it's literacy or children's mortality rates or life expectancy around the world, mm-hmm. uh, those things are all surging. And so there is there is hope, uh, even amid a lot of abuses and a lot of challenges. Uh, the extreme poverty rate is down to under 10% for the first time in human history. That's amazing. For the, fir- for the first time in human history, less than a billion people live on sort of desperate extreme poverty. Uh, and, and that's just been true in the last 18 months. So there's a lot to celebrate, even amid a lot of things that a lot of work we still have to do as Christians. We'll get right back to this conversation after a quick word from our sponsor. Lagos Bible Software helps users study the Bible in depth and with accuracy. And each month, you can get free resources to help you dig into the Word. Past free resources include the Word Biblical Commentary Ecclesiastes, a video seminary course from Dr. Craig Evans, and the Message of the Sermon on the Mount by John Stott. Learn more by visiting logos.com slash the way home. One of the other things that you, I think, have really helped lead a, a lot of uh, nonprofit leaders and Christian leaders to think through is just beyond relief and development that you do, but mm. also leadership itself and, and how to lead organizations. I think, you know, a few years ago when your book Mission Drift came out, I think it was just really, really helpful for those of us who are in positions of leadership to think through, you know, our organizations and how easily they can they can drift off mission or how to stay focused on mission. You have a new book out called Rooting for Rivals, which I just love the premise uh, where you you really encourage partnerships between organizations and, as opposed to competition. What motivated you to, to write this book at this time? Well, I think most of the writing that Peter and I have done have been out of our failures and acknowledging all the ways that we've messed up at Hope and how... <laughs> True it is that the mistakes we've made have been replicated across the evangelical nonprofit landscape. And 
And so we just kind of write from our place of failures that we, we see mirrored in our peer organizations. But Rooting for Rivals came about, for me, the moment that I decided that we need to write this book was in hearing about the recent Bible translation efforts. Now, I, I wasn't, I mean, as, as someone who believes in Bible translation, I've never worked in that industry or in that sector, but I've always believed it's important. And and yet I, I had a friend at a foundation who, who shared with Peter that, my co-author shared with us that he had three different Bible translation ministries approach him over the course of a few months, asking them as a foundation to fund the translation for a specific people group. And, and they didn't realize that they were, all, all three of them were asking for the exact same translation. They were asking for funding because they were each working on it separately. And, and the foundation rep went back to them and said, do you know that there are other organizations also trying to get the Bible translated into the same language as you? And they didn't know that. And, and it was hearing about that moment was one of those, what? Like, how is that possible? Like, how is it that as Christians, you know, Jesus's longest prayer for us is about unity and, and his aspiration that we would live as one. And yet as something as unifying as Bible translation, even there, we're fragmented. Now we know as Protestants, like protest is in our very name. Uh, that's kind of who we are as Protestants. Protestants uh, is that when something's not going well, we we split and we start our own thing. That's that again. That there, there's some real value there. And yet, I think that there's a huge opportunity for us to link arms across our disagreements to work together on shared cause and shared mission. And to the credit of all the people in the Bible translation movement, they didn't take that chastisement from that foundation rep as something that um, would just le- like discourage them, but said, this is an opportunity. Like This creates a moment for us to think about how we might work together better than we are today. And so it started this really interesting kind of quasi-informal uh, partnership between some of the largest Bible translations in the world. The public name of it is Illuminations. You can look it up uh, online, but independently, these organizations had all started saying that the Bible, they would finish getting the Bible translated in every language in the world by 2150. Uh, That was the, again, independently of each other, they all basically said it's going to be another 117, uh, you know, 115 years until we were at that time be able to to get the Bible translated. And now they're meeting together, the heads of these, the 10 largest Bible translation ministries are meeting together once a month for a full day in the Dallas airport. And they're, they're meeting with funders, they're meeting with each other, and they're just beginning to share resources and saying, well, you know, your graphic designers can help here, and we can, our translators can help there, and maybe we can start to share resources more effectively. And because of that partnership that just began a few years ago, they're now collectively saying, we're going to finish the job by 2035. So over the course of just a few years, they've been able to chop over 115 years off their shared efforts to translate the Bible in every language in the world. And like that story to me, 150 years of, pro- of, of progress just because they're working together and raising money together and collaborating, it's insane. And that, and that sort of thing should become so normal within the church. Yeah, I, uh, And I, that, that, that's so animating to us. That shared project of translation is one of the things that excites me so much when I think about that, the collaboration there. And I, I do feel like we are in a, and and maybe I'm just just because you know we personally try to do this as well collaborate with with different ministries for shared goals, um, but it seems like that we're almost in a sort of 
sweet time of that happening mm-hmm. in, in the evangelical mm-hmm. world where people are. Do, do you feel like that's happening more than, say, in previous eras? Oh, it's a moment for sure. Uh, and I think part of it is the the, the zeitgeist, you know, with, with the fact that as evangelicals, we're no longer the sort of predominant religion in the land, and we no longer have a place of majority status. And uh, Dr. Moore has done some great writing on that uh, in, in terms of uh, this transition to this prophetic minority. And, and obviously, that's somewhat aspirational. I don't think we're there yet. But I think because of the fact that that shift is happening, it's causing us to sort of look over some of our disagreements for shared mission. Not to say that those disagreements aren't important. Like there are reasons why there are Presbyterians and Baptists and Anglicans and the reason that they're not all under one umbrella or one smaller umbrella. You know, we're, we're obviously under the one larger umbrella of Christ. But um, there, there are reasons that we have separate denominations. And I am not suggesting that uh, that's going to go away. But I mean, if you look at illuminations and Bible translation, like that, that didn't exist five years ago and is having a huge impact. Uh, if you look at campus ministry right now, there's a, an amazing collaborative endeavor called One Campus, uh, spearheaded by InterVarsity and Crew and NAVS. And now they've drawn in other groups like CCO and Veritas Forum and others that are saying, what if instead of saying we all want to be on every campus, we wanted to see a gospel community, a gospel campus outreach on every campus in the country? Like, what would, how would that change how we operate if instead of kind of working separately, we, we started working together and kind of did a map overlay together and said, well, we have people going to this college and we're hiring campus ministers at that college. And, you know, we're like, that could really oh, yeah. move, the, move the needle in our country. So yeah, that, th- those aren't the only examples, but those are two of the larger ones that have all sort of germinated in the last five years. Yeah. And it, 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 it does seem like some of it's also motivated just by economic realities and this idea that like, how can we be an organization that only that specializes in only what we can provide as opposed to what everyone else and then leverage the the good of other organizations that are in a space that they're better at than we are right and you're starting to see this even among churches and mm. communities right and i remember when i pastored i pastored a small church and i you know i quickly realized like okay this other church is doing this really ministry, good ministry to the community that we're not going to be able to replicate, nor should we. So let, let's all sort of work together and figure out what our niches are and where we can work together. What, what are the things that you think keep cooperation from happening? Is it is it kind of turf battles or sort of failure for organizations to kind of reevaluate their priorities? What, what are the thing, What are the obstacles to to rooting for rivals, if you will? Yeah. Well, in the book, we lay out how the seven deadly sins are actually a great. It's a great starting point for answering that question. And, and if you look at the seven deadly sins through the lens of this discussion, uh, each of those comes into play in why churches and ministries don't work together. But the first and foremost, and you know, C.S. Lewis calls it the root of all sins, is pride. And I think that there, whether it's church leaders or ministry leaders, there is an unspoken belief we have that we have the market cornered on brilliance. You know, that our approach, our model, our thing is better than everybody else's. And I remember presentations I've given at churches and presentations I've given at foundations where I've put Hope's approach to serving the, the world's underserved, marginalized communities. And I've kind of done a dollar by do, dollar to dollar comparison of why we're a better, a better place for donors to give, better place for churches to partner 
than all these other approaches to eradicating poverty, clean water or child sponsorship or anti-human trafficking or whatever. And like, what good did that approach generate? Like, uh, all right, you know, like, so maybe there is a case to be made for this in some areas that certain organizations are better than others, but did that actually create any good fruit? And I think the reality is no. Uh, you know, we're on average 2% uh, is, is the total that Americans are giving to, to ministry and church period. And if we spend our time thinking like the world and, and clamoring for a bigger share of that 2%, we, we're dead, dead at the starting line. We need to be about compelling people to say, what if we looked beyond just giving 2%? Like, what if we compelled people by the power of what God's up to in the world and say, and we're trying to do this at Hope as best we can, but at our events say, some of you today are passionate about fighting human trafficking. And we want you to give to International Justice Mission. Like, we want you to continue mm. to give and to give more than you are now because we can't do our work without them. Mm. Uh, and some of you today are really excited about clean water. And we want you to give to living water and healing waters and be involved in bringing clean water into place. Like, this is, this is part of our responsibility mm-hmm. as Christians and an incredible opportunity. So, yeah, I, I do think pride is the biggest thing. And, and we, it's, it's sort of the, the unspoken reality that exists in a lot of our boardrooms and executive teams around our Christian ministries and, and churches is that we really think we're, we think that our approach is better than everyone else's. Yeah. And it, it's also just a great way for organizations to, uh, I found, you know, let's say there's a, there's a issue that we start to really care about, but we're not equipped to, to deal with, but we want to shed light using our influence on someone who's doing really great work over here to just really kind of encourage and support those groups. And and I also think another just practical outworking of what you're saying is, you know, if you're if you're a church or an individual that's saying, man, God's really put this issue on my heart, the first thing should maybe not be to um, hey, I'm gonna go start my own nonprofit in this space, but to mm. look and see what organization can I come alongside who's already doing good work in this area that I can support and bolster and and join their work. And and there may be a need at some point to start a nonprofit if there's a particular gap in, in that field, but it just seems that's kind of what you're encouraging. Like, look mm. around and see who's already doing this well, right? Right, that's right. And, you know, I, we've heard a number of examples of how churches are doing this recently, and I think there's something so provocative about it, and I, I hope it becomes normal. But uh, Craig Rochelle, most recently at Life Church, and uh, there are a bunch of churches we feature in the book who have started doing this too. But at the end of the service or beginning of the service, they'll say, we know that we aren't the church for everyone in our community, uh, but we have co-laborers, brothers and and sisters and churches uh, across our community that we think are great places for you to get plugged in. And we want to encourage you to get to know them. We actually, you know, Craig Rochelle in a recent sermon series, he actually had church leaders from other churches that they believe in and partner in from uh, Oklahoma City in the lobby and said, if this isn't, if Life Church isn't the place for you, mm. uh, we've had we've had folks in the lobby. We love, we want you to get involved in a gospel-centered church. Mm. Uh, and the same is true with a lot of churches. Started doing that more regularly, and I think th- it's that exercise and discipline of even just saying that, uh, even if no one takes you up on it. I think it's the exercise and discipline of saying it that starts to change our mindset and start to realize and kind of look beyond. We talk about this a lot, but in the book of seeing beyond the boundaries of your organization uh, and seeing the work that God is doing outside of your, mm. your clan or your tribe. And the, the more you begin to do that, the more encouraging and inspiring, I think it becomes. Well, that is a great word, Chris. Uh, always enjoy having you on here and really appreciate the work that Hope is doing. And I encourage if you're 
if you're listening to this, check out the work of Hope International. They're making a really lasting difference in a, in a lot of... Uh, I mean, we're the best, Dan. Uh, right. Better than you everyone else. So <laughs> exactly. I, there no other organization holds a candle to hope. So I, I really <laughs> yeah. hope if, any, if nothing else came through today, yeah. I hope that's what everyone heard. <laughs> exactly. But I encourage, <laughs> I encourage everyone to check out what they're doing in communities around the world and uh, check out this great new book by uh, Chris and Peter Greer called Rooting for Rivals. Really fantastic stuff. And uh, we just wish you all the best, Chris. And thanks for thanks for joining me today. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. Learn how you can get a free Bible study resource each month with Lago's free Book of the Month program. Visit logos.com slash thewayhome to learn more. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.